Amen. Well, good morning. Oh, beloved, you're looking wonderful. Turn with me, if you will, to the beloved Gospel of Mark. We've got quite a few families out this week. We look forward to their return next week. Of course, our love and affection for Brady for turning our affections heavenward in praise this morning. The psalmist declared, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And that is an invigorating statement to renew our joy, isn't it? Now, I do not know what kind providence has brought into your life this week. Perhaps what hurt or what harm, even what plan of the enemy the Lord has allowed to spur you on toward godliness this week. I don't know every irritant or hardship or affliction he's introduced so lovingly to change you into the image of his son. But I do know that it's being worked out for our eternal good. I do know that God was more patient with us this week than we deserved. Even while we were impatient with others. That he showed such unfailing love even when we were unlovable. That he forgave us even when we didn't know to ask for it. So if you are called and elect in Christ, beloved, you swam in a sea of faithfulness this week. If we were to pause and ponder that ocean in all of its magnitude, in all of its, its undeserved, lavish depths, we would be submerged. We would be breathless as we considered the waves of faithfulness that overtook us this week. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And so we are. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we continued our march down Jesus Olivet Discourse, continuing in our series of last things. I believe this is our, our 13th installment of this series. I anticipate probably about two more or so to wrap it up, which will also wrap up Wednesday of Passion Week as well, leading us into Thursday, of course, when Jesus will celebrate Passover with his disciples in the upper room. And on to Friday, Jesus' crucifixion. And last week was a tremendous opportunity for us. We looked at verses 24 and 25, and we saw Jesus drawing purely on the Old Testament and explaining the incredible cosmic signs that will accompany and immediately precede his return. Of course, the darkening of the sun, the moon not giving its light, the heavens shaking, the stars falling. And we saw a good reason for these being in all caps in Mark, didn't we? meaning an Old Testament quotation or usage in the New Testament. Because these events, these, this cosmic dwindling of the luminaries, are represented all over the Old Testament. We know that the prophets speak. And we encouraged ourselves in that cohesiveness, didn't we? That there is one word, that there is one God of the word, that scripture has one author, and that the author hasn't changed his plans. From the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, the plan is still the plan. And thus, we had an incredible time last week scouring the Old Testament, looking to both the major and the minor prophets as they illuminate the manner in which God will not only judge the world in finality, but how he will keep his promises to Israel. We look to Amos and to Isaiah, to Zechariah and Zephaniah, Joel, Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Haggai. We still didn't have time to cover it all. And still, as we look to the Old Testament, as we look to the mechanics of the lights going out in the universe, we were reminded that, that it is Christ who upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews tells us. 
Now, this is not some abstract, spiritualized upholding. It is quite literal. Paul encouraged the Colossians, for by him, meaning by Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and that in him all things hold together. So not only did we see Christ in view at creation, that Christ is the agent of creation, and that Christ is the goal of creation, and that Christ is the recipient of creation, but that in him it all holds together. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Literally, scientifically, down to the atomic level. These are the elements in 2 Peter that will melt with fervent heat. When Christ, to whom all that has been given, begins to withdraw the word of his power, even by the slightest, that the universe will rip itself apart. Even down to the very nucleus, the very building blocks of the universe. Recall that every physicist will tell you that there is both a strong and a weak force applied to the nucleus of every atom. And yet those positive particles are repulsed electromagnetically by other positive protons. This means that a nucleus would be driven apart if it were not for that strong force which binds the nucleus together. Meaning that there is an active force imposed on the universe which actively holds the very atoms of the material world together every second of every day. And we know what that strong force is. We know what holds the universe together down to the molecular level. It is the word of his power. And thus to observe the cosmic chaos that will ensue just prior to Christ's return is incredibly easy to wrap our minds around. And we know that these cosmic signs will come at the imminent end. And it must be so. Because life can scarcely and not long survive on a planet thrown into such a state A blackened sun will, of course, freeze all life very quickly. The moon, the tides, the cracking of the tectonic plates, releasing lava flows, on top of all that has already occurred, the life that remains will hang by a thread. But we do know that there will be many alive, tribulation believers and unbelievers alike, but still the lights must go out. They must go out because it is against the freezing backdrop of complete darkness over the earth that a most radiant, magnificent Shekinah light is going to pierce through it. And today we come upon this most magnificent scene, one that we have been building toward for some time now in the Olivet Discourse. Indeed, this event is the very answer to the disciples' original question that brought us here. What will be the sign of your return? Here are all the birth pains to get us there, but here is the sign. And someone, some will recall our teaching on the many birth pains that Jesus spoke of that would, that would get us here. Knowing that we have birth pains, we must have a birth. There must be a baby coming. And indeed, that baby, the final manifestation of all the birth pains to this point, is none other than the second coming of Christ. Understand that this is the finale which all history is marching toward. This is how it all ends. What began in a garden with a tree and a serpent 
will end against the freezing backdrop of blackness and the return of Christ. With the Antichrist having made a coalition of countries now to, that are willing to attack Israel, that are willing to aid in the persecution and killing of both Jews and true followers of Christ, it is a desperate state that Jerusalem will find herself in as the stars begin to fall from the heavens. Jerusalem will have become ground zero for the Antichrist and his persecution after the abomination of desolation, committed now in the newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. But yet amidst this persecution, not only has the gospel continued to go forth, whether it's from the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, or the two witnesses, or the angels proclaiming it in the midheaven, we've learned about all of those in detail already, the gospel goes forth to the end, but we beheld the heart of the Lord in the Old Testament prophecies of this, didn't we? We saw it in Joel 2. Even as the sun was going dark and the sky being rolled up like a scroll, the cry of the Lord, even now, the heart of the Lord, was returned to me. Return to me. Remember, these are God's people. They are the Jews. And of course, the majority point of the Olivet Discourse, the majority point of Revelation, is to demonstrate how God is going to finally reconcile his people back to himself. Even a full one-third of Israel. God is a covenant-keeping God. Hosea 5.15 proclaims, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Israel, the Jewish people, all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, this must be brought full circle. There must be a reconciliation with the Messiah whom you pierced. There must be a reckoning with the Messiah whom you have pierced. And that will bring both joy and terror in that day. Zechariah 12.10 tells us, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. He will raise a signal for the nations, Isaiah declares, and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. God is not finished with Israel. The Lord spoke through Jeremiah declaring, Thus says the Lord, if my covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob. And David, my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I will restore their fortunes, and I will have mercy on them. What a text we approach today. Beloved, it's truly the culmination of redemptive history. The most hoped for, the most longed for, the most feared, the most anticipated event. This is the end. So with that, beloved, let's open our text. Mark, 12, Mark 13, 26 through 27. Mark 13, 26 through 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. 
And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your mercy to hear these words. Lord, we need your grace shed abroad in our heart. Lord, that the seed might find good soil. Lord, we must see this as it is. We must see you as you are. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would go before us in this, that you will attend and abide to your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, I believe it was last year, I think it was perhaps two years ago, our, our women's ministry went to Answers in Genesis for their conference uh, at the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. What a wonderful time. And in fact, our family went there recently as well. But inside the Ark is a most unique display. The purpose of this display was to show the absurdity and the unbiblical portrayal of the flood and the ark in modern day, in the toys and the books that we have. Somehow, the most horrendous judgment on earth up to that point, God wiping out all of humanity because of their wickedness, someone along the way thought this would make a great children's story with little Fisher-Price toys to boot, right? Nursery wallpapers, smiling animals all in the ark, right? Today, the depiction of the ark, and, and indeed the flood, is, is somehow a happy children's tale everywhere you look, with no grounding in the biblical flood, nor the realities of that awful day. As I considered this, I was immediately drawn to our, our similarly idealized sentiment of the second coming, our somewhat romanticized view of this event. Now, most picture Jesus on his white horse coming in the clouds, and all that is true. Just like the happy animals getting on the ark in the coloring book are also true. But it fails to capture the tragic truths of the event. So many aspects of the flood, the ark, Noah's family, are also true of the second coming. Both occur from a place of judgment as a penalty and outpouring for sin. Both occurred with the purpose of bringing death. On a massive scale, both were a rescue mission. The flood for Noah and his family, and the second coming for Israel, the Jewish people, the tribulation saints, who are about to be annihilated by the Antichrist and his armies at Armageddon. In a very real sense, the Lord cleansed the earth with the flood, making it new again, starting over with the remnant family. So it is with the second coming. After destroying the earth, God will make it new again. Saving a remnant to inhabit this new earth. Both events came with tremendous promises that have been kept and will be kept. First through water and now through fire. There's so many parallels between the two. But just as the Ark Encounter sought to give us a, a biblical lens for both the, the terrible and glorious realities of the flood. So also this morning we seek to view the most visible, most public display in all of human history, in all of its truth as well. Meaning, yes, we must see the judgment. We must also see the rescue mission. We must see the tragedy. But we must rejoice in the ushering in of a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. If any of these are missing in our understanding, 
we have not set our hearts correctly on the most awesome event in scope or scale that will ever be. In fact, it's estimated that around one of every 25 verses in the New Testament speaks in some manner to this event, to the second coming. That's more than 500 verses scripture-wide, just in the New Testament. So make no mistake, beloved, this event is a central theme of your Bible. It's a central theme. So let us look to our first verse then, verse 26. Verse 26 And then they will see the Son of Man. Now pause there for a moment. First question we need to ask is who are they? If we're going to establish who they are, we're going to be able to establish the scope of this event. Now thankfully we barely crack Revelation before we are told the scope of the event. Revelation 1-7 tells us, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. Oh, I would love to just camp on that verse. So much to see right there. But very quickly, we see three descriptions here, don't we? Now, first, just to eliminate any ambiguity, to be crystal clear, it says every eye will see him. It is black. And against that backdrop comes the very glory cloud of heaven. The brightness of his coming, the Shekinah light and glory, every light will see him. But hang on, John the Revelator doesn't simply leave it at that. What does he say next? Even those who pierced him. Now this is referring to unbelieving Jews, right? It is they who instigated, they were the provocateurs of the most evil act of all time. Of course, one which God used to accomplish the greatest good of all time. But nevertheless, Peter was very clear in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2. It was the Jews who crucified the Lord of glory. And then in our next group in Revelation 1-7, he says, And all the tribes of the earth, that's your Gentiles, every non-Jew, every eye will see. Now does every eye include the Jews who had come to Christ during that time? The one-third of Israel? Yes. Does every eye include the Gentiles who came to Christ during the time of the tribulation? Yes, them as well. But here John is highlighting those who have not come. John is focusing here on the unbelievers that will see Christ's return on that day. So the question must be asked, what will they see? Well, they will see exactly what the believers of that time will see. But it will mean two very different things. It's like a criminal and a law-abiding citizen both seeing a police officer coming, right? Seeing the same thing, meaning two very different things. Paul describes this day in Thessalonians as viewed by unbelievers. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now we've taken great pains to paint an accurate picture of the times leading up to this event, knowing that it is the very backdrop that accentuates the incredible light. 
And in describing the lost leading up to the second coming, Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse gives incredible insight. Listen to this. Listen to this description in Luke 21, 25 through 27. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among the nations. In perplexity, at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Have you ever heard the expression, I was scared to death? I was scared to death. That's precisely what we see here. Now, the English does us no favors. It misses the magnitude of it. But if we look at the Greek, we have what's called a hapex legomena here in Luke. Now, if you're in adult Sunday school or you're in our men's ministry, you know exactly what that big word means. But it means that this word is used only one time in all of Scripture. One time. That means we stop, we pause, and we study. This is unique. One time only. And here we see this in Jesus describing the lost in the days immediately preceding his return. Now the word translated fainting here is apaputsko. Except it does not mean to faint as you and I would understand it. It means to breathe out life, to leave off breathing, to expire. Now we know from previous messages that at the very end, the trumpet and the bold judgments have all come in rapid succession. It's like nothing we can imagine as we've tried to convey. But that's looking at these events as believers who know what's happening, who know that the end is coming, who know the one who's controlling the calamity. Imagine knowing none of that. Imagine times, how many of us even see times in our life where we see people suffering tragedy and we know that they don't know the lord and how much worse must that be you say i can't imagine going through that and not knowing the lord it's so bad jesus said people expire from fear people are literally scared to death that's not a euphemism this is literal we're talking about lethal emotional trauma now, medical backgrounds will know that brings a, a racing pulse and ultimately cardiac collapse. Listen to the words of Isaiah describing the days and moments for the lost just before Jesus' return. In Isaiah 13, 8, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor they will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Faces aflame, Isaiah said. Are we not hearkened back to Paul's description to the Thessalonians? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on our Lord, who do not, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And when that light breaks into the darkness, when Jesus appears in flaming fire, setting their faces aflame, what then will they do? The only thing they can do. Revelation 6 tells us, The sky was split apart like a scroll. When it was rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place, being Christ is returning, the lights are piercing through, their faces are set aflame, what will they do? 
than the kings of the earth. And the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? His eyes are aflame and their faces are aflame. It is well that John described the Lord Jesus as he is today in the opening chapter of Revelation. He's not a baby in a manger. He's not a ridiculed victim of Roman execution or a reviled recipient of Jewish mockery. John writes, his head and his hair were white, like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And to the lost... The second coming of Christ will set their face aflame. And it is well that we grasp, dear friends, knowing the terror of the Lord, beloved, the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. But to his children, thankfully, John goes on. Having fallen at Jesus' feet like a dead man, what do these flaming eyes of fire say? And he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Yes, the second coming is judgment unspeakable. But it is also a rescue mission for his people. Jesus said in Luke to my children, to the believers that are on the earth at this time, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Isn't it astonishing how the same incredible scene will cause one to lift up their heads and to raise their eyes with joyful anticipation, knowing that their redemption is at the door and the next person's heart is literally failing them at the sight. Back to our text, last part of verse 26. What will every eye see? The Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. It's the climax of human history. It's described in in unforgettable, incredible detail, Revelation 19. Beloved, begin turning there if you would. Let your mind's eye grasp this if you can. Turn with me there quickly, beloved. Let's hear the rustling of the pages. Revelation 19. Let us lay eyes on this glorious scene. Beginning at verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. 
He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It's hardly imaginable. It is overwhelming here as we consider the complete saturation of the attributes of Christ on display here. The realities and the truth that are radiating from its very essence. Look at this in wonderment, saints. Heaven opened. Back to verse 11. The second coming begins. Why? Because that's where Christ was and is. Having ascended and being seated at the right hand of the Father. Ever living to make intercession for his children. And he's riding on a mighty horse. Why? Because he's king. And not just any horse, but a white horse. Because he's king of kings. And he's pure as the whitest snow. Having all power and all authority to make war on that horse. And look, and he who call, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. Capital F, Faithful, capital T, True. Meaning we're not simply describing Jesus as being faithful and being true. It is a title. That he is faithfulness embodied. That he is truth in its highest and purest. And he's faithful because he said, I will come again. The Son of Man will come again. And I'm keeping that promise. My word is true. Sanctify them by your truth. Thy word is truth. In Christ's presence on that white horse, the finality of justice was prophesied from the prophets on. And he is faithful. And he is true. And what does it say? In righteousness he judges and makes war. Not only is God justified in his incredible judgment that he has and is about to mete out on the earth, but the holiness of God, the pure righteousness of God demands that he judge and bring the wicked to waste. The very attribute of his righteousness means his judgment and his war are both good and right. And his flame, his eyes are a flame of fire, John goes on. That means he's omniscient. He sees it all. He sees straight through it all. Nothing is hidden from him. All is laid bare. Every molecule is penetrated by the gaze of its maker on that day. And the thick air of deception that had engulfed the world under the sway of the Antichrist is shattered. No deception can hide under any rock. And on his head are many diadems. Diadems meaning crowns. How many? Many. Meaning every crown is now his. It's all been given to Christ. It's all been put in subjection under his feet. It has been given to the king of kings who is worthy of every crown to make war and to mete out vengeance. Unless we have any doubts, what does John say next? And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. Meaning not only is he worthy, 
Not only is he king, not only does he wear every crown, not only is he just and righteous, not only is he faithful and true, but he's so high and so lifted up that our finite mans cannot even begin to grasp his name, the glory of his majesty. He has a name written on him. Name meaning who he is, what he is, all of my attributes wrapped up into my name. And it's so perfect and so holy and so far above everything our minds could think, conceive, or imagine. We can't even read the name. Behold your Savior as he is now, today. What's he wearing, John? He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. What does that mean, it's dipped in blood? Well, this means that it's not his first rodeo. It means I have been meeting out death for the last seven years. Now, we know through our series that the vast majority of the planet has been killed by this point in the tribulation. And we're reminded that while God allowed the great wrath of Satan coming down through the Antichrist and his false prophet, through wicked men, to be an instrument of that death for many, Scripture is clear. The wrath is the Lord's. The four horsemen of the apocalypse that caused such destruction and death. Scripture tells us who held the reins the entire time. The trumpet judgments blown by angels. The bold judgments poured out by angels. All declared and decreed from heaven as the scroll was opened. His robe is dipped in blood. As hard as that is for us to grasp. And to see our Savior in that role. We prefer the image of our wonderful Savior by a stream with children on his lap. Yes, he is the Lamb of God. But he's also the Lion of Judah. And he has commanded the forces of heaven this entire time. Judgment has been given to Christ to deliver. It's all his. Paul declared on Mars Hill in Acts 17, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through the man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Jesus declares in John 5, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Even now, with the second coming, as hard as it is to grasp, Understand that the son comes first to kill. His robe is dipped in blood. Paul is clear. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. John leaves no room for interpretation. For from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Whose wrath here, beloved? It's God's. It's God's. Oh, that we might know him. Do you want to know him? All of him. Is often the reality of this day, the coming of this day, of not wishing to be on the wrong side of the king, that men are drawn to repentance and faith. Fear can be a wonderful and a healthy emotion if it drives one to the open arms 
of the Savior. If it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, as Scripture says, ought we to know why? And look, look who is with Christ. Look back in Revelation 19, look who's coming back with him. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, we did a deep dive on this earlier in our series. You can go back and listen to that. But very quickly, the first giveaway is the fine linen, white and clean. We know who that is. Just earlier in that same chapter, Revelation 19, we're all getting dressed for a feast. For the marriage supper of the Lamb, verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So who is following Christ in fine white linen? These are all who have died in Christ at this point. That would be comprised of the raptured church. The Old Testament saints, Daniel actually says their bodies will resurrect and rejoin there. Who died in faith looking toward Messiah. We know as well from Revelation that this will be the tribulation saints. Those who were martyred during these horrific seven years. And of course the army of angels as well. Matthew 24, 31, 25, 31 also tell us this. And that must be so. Why? Why must the angels come? Well, in scripture angels do many things. But one task they have is they're gatherers. Angels are gatherers. We see this all over. Consider Matthew 13. Remember, that's a collection of Jesus' parables there. Verse 39 reads, the reapers are angels. Verse 41 reads, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteousness. All over Scripture, angels are the gatherers of men. Most of the time, they're being gathered for judgment. But here we have a much happier gathering. Back to our text, turning to our final verse, verse 27. Verse 27. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. I look to that beginning again. And then. We cannot go skipping over those precious two words. And then. Meaning and after. Beloved, we've spent now 13 or even 14 messages expounding upon the horrific calamity that will come upon the earth in those days. We've watched as the four horsemen brought death and disease, war, famine, collapse. As the oceans and rivers and lakes turned to blood or wormwood. Earthquakes that alter the face of the planet. Hailstones a hundred pounds in size. Demonic locusts and armies. The celestial bodies careening out of control. Stars falling, sun black, the lights going out in the universe. A time so horrific that men will beg to die. They beg for the mountains to fall on them. A time of such fear and anxiety that it will stop men's hearts. And then. What a glorious and then. Lift up your face. Stand up straight, beloved. Your redemption draws nigh. Those two words to a tribulation saint who lived through this time. There are no more beautiful words than these right here. And then. 
While many will have been martyred during this period, the Lord has preserved a remnant. Who are the angels gathering here from the four winds? We know that he will protect the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, right? Revelation 7 and Revelation 14. They will now be gathered. Zechariah 12, the entire chapter is nearly, nearly is about those that God will spare and save in Israel who have turned their eyes to Messiah and they will behold him. One third of Israel is still alive. Having been given the title and deed to earth, he now touches down. When Christ returns, he will return to the exact place that he left. The exact place where he ascended back into heaven, the wonderful Mount of Olives. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. When Jesus touches down on the Mount of Olives, something quite incredible happens. Zechariah 14.4 In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem, pay attention to this, beloved, on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle, from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Now the return of Christ will trigger an earthquake like never seen before. And some believe that this might be the same incredible earthquake spoken of in Revelation 16. It's possible because Zechariah goes on to say that this splitting is going to make a way of escape through the valley for the Jews. It's very reminiscent of God splitting the Red Sea. It has a similar effect, it seems. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place, the prophet Micah declares. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. But beloved, understand, Jesus is not splitting the Mount of Olives for the sake of splitting it. Or just for the sake of fulfilling prophecy. He's not merely doing it to make a pathway of escape through his mountains for his people. That's what he calls it, his mountains. This is a joyous preparation for the millennial kingdom. Those of you who know your geography, do you know what would happen if you split this area north to south and made a huge east-west valley? the Mediterranean Sea would literally dump into the desert there. If you've ever been to the Dead Sea, that will completely fill up. If we look to Isaiah 35, it is quite literally titled, Zion's Happy Future. Listen to this incredible account. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will blossom profusely. The scorched land will become a pool. And the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunts of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. <laughs> I've got news for you, beloved. The desert doesn't blossom and bloom. And it definitely doesn't blossom profusely. 
unless you split the Mount of Olives to the north and the south and the Mediterranean Ocean comes rushing in. Desert gone. Scripture says there will be no desert in the millennial kingdom. And now we know how. Isn't that wonderful? You can trust the book in your hands. Jesus will return. He will come again just as he left. We have his repeated word on that. Beloved, there are about 400 references in Scripture to Jesus' first coming, his birth in Bethlehem. There are almost 2,000 for his second coming. Satan will be bound. And while the lights may have gone out in the universe, the Lord declares through Isaiah, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven days on the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. There comes a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, where Christ is king. Beloved, the sun need never come back. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. After walking through such difficult topics as these for the last well, four or five months, we've been in the Olivet Discourse, capturing in our mind's eye the horrific calamity and tragedy that comes because of sin, the tribulation that will come, and we can finally breathe. Listen to the beauty that will come from the ashes of the earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right. For these words are faithful and true. If you are here today or listening online, and this is not the Christ you have surrendered to, Jesus goes on. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. If you thirst this morning, there is eternal water to be had. And if you drink of it, you'll never be thirsty again. What a joyous day to come to re in repentance and faith. Surrendering to Christ. Lay down your arms. He will welcome you gladly. Let us pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we are a people marked by hope. A living hope living stones placed in your church that look to the coming of a new heavens and a new earth. Lord, we live with great expectation of seeing you. 
Lord, of being caught up together with you in the air and to return with you again in your army. Lord, what a sight. What a day. Lord, we ask for eternal vision this week. Lord, as we go out and we face the challenges of everyday life, in our work, with our family, whatever it might be, Lord, we ask for eternal vision. Give us a sight for what will come and what is to be, as sure as your word. Lord, we ask that you would keep those who are not with us this week. We ask that you would bring us all together by your word and by your power. In Jesus' name, amen.